You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello everyone. A little weary of the lockdown measures here in Victoria, but things are closer to resolution. You're here with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. Someone told me the other day that the funny thing about COVID lockdown is that you have long days and fast weeks. Time just seems to take on a different meaning. According to our current affairs coordinator here at 3CR, some people have been so stirred they have expressed interest in the Freedom Day protests that are planned for today, the group of people who are anti-mask and COVID restrictions maintain COVID is a hoax and the lockdown against their human rights. We opened the show with a chat I had with Cam from Ye Na Pasaran, a fellow 3CR producer, uh, about this Freedom Day protest. And I followed this with a discussion put on recently by Mel's Melbourne Activist Legal Support, one of their webinars, Bring the Law to the Public during Victorian Law Week 2020. The theme, Protest, Repression and the Law. Peter Davis is back with Over the Wall. Kevin Healy wraps up the week and we have a piece from Vivian Langford from our Zero Emissions Community Program on Mondays at 5.30pm who is speaking to Dan Morgan from up near Bega about cultural burning. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. It has been tough dealing with the hard lockdown in Victoria, especially with mounting pressure coming from the federal government to put the economy before health. Now, there are lots of views and frustrations being expressed about this health emergency response. And today, a group is apparently going to demonstrate about masks and uh, control of movement. They are calling it Freedom Day. I spoke with Cam, a fellow broadcaster at 3CR from Ye Na Pasaran program about the issues coming out of this demonstration. Well, I mean, if you look at 
the situation. There's obviously things about the lockdown to be critical of, and we've seen that areas that are traditionally over-policed have continued to be over-policed in the, you know, the new COVID normal, but that doesn't detract from the fact that we're in an unprecedented global pandemic and that we do need to have some sort of uh, response to that. I was, I was thinking the same. If it could be done better, obviously that would be good, but I mean, a lot of it is obviously they're very much thinking on their feet and so they're always going to go back to what they know best, which tends to be, you know, to be a little bit uh, restrictive. Uh, we, you know, we saw with the towers that uh, that was their instant reaction was just to lock down people that they're used to locking down. Having said that, though, the people who are protesting uh, on Saturday today, I guess when this was going to air, are not uh, really that interested in freedom the way that you or I would think about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I looked at the open letter and it makes a lot of demands. It says we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that and Dan Andrews shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. But it actually doesn't mention anything about the health emergency that we're in. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that list of demands is quite extreme in that they're saying we need to get rid of any sort of public health measure that's been put in place. There shouldn't be any mask wearing, there shouldn't be any restrictions on you know, uh, how many people can be together at all, but that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg of where they're coming from. Like these people don't believe in the virus, so they're coming to it from a very conspiratorial view. They're not just coming to it from a view where they're like, I don't trust all of the science, or you know, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Oh, I mean, I, I was, uh, I've just been reading um, some stuff about the from the MEAA about uh, how the uh, they've had a. A committee inquiry into the police powers that uh, reporting of governments on police raids on journalists and the business about journalists being put in jail because they um, are um, uh, divulging secrets and also things like uh, Bernard Kaliri and Witness K being uh, tried in secret courts over issues of uh, basically the government behaving badly, spying on the East Timorese uh, for oil companies. Uh, the gov present government, federal government's put in laws uh, after um, it, 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 that uh, basically says that lawyers who represent sovereign nations uh, will be acting illegally if they try and work against economic interests of Australia, you know, it would be treasonable, that sort of thing. So there are actually really big deal, big uh, authoritarian issues about round freedom that need to be considered in Australia. But when you pretend that health issues aren't important and that our science doesn't actually tell us how to behave, uh, in order to not have thousands of people dying versus you're, you can't tell me I can wear a mask or you can't tell me I can't go somewhere. It, it, it's it's a sort of a, a subversion of the whole concept of solidarity, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things like being told to wear a mask sort of 
they pale in comparison when you look at what we do to asylum seekers. I guess just on the point of you know the secret trials and things, the people who are organising this rally, a lot of them subscribe to this sovereign citizen ideology where really what they want at the end of the day is to be the ones holding the secret trials. They want to be putting you know, the media who they don't like on trial. And the sort of things they talk about are that media and politicians who do things they don't like, which includes saying that the coronavirus is real, are committing treason and that the punishment for that should be death. So it's not really... Uh, not really freedom as we'd understand it. No, it's interesting too that they've taken the name the free when when I heard that term Freedom Day, that's actually the name that the Gurindji people uh, have given their uh, ceremony for uh, celebrating the Wave Hill Walk Off. Mm. And the, they tend to like to co-opt these things from the left. There's also one of the groups organising it is called the Ninety Nine Percent, you know, straight out of Occupy. Uh, I guess they, they take what they've seen that has sort of worked from the left and try and put it onto these fairly right-wing events. Yeah, isn't that interesting how um, right-wing uh, ideologies uh, are submerging uh, genuine progressive conversations? Yeah, I think there might also be an element that there's a, an anti-vax sort of element to a lot of this stuff where they don't think that uh, anyone should be vaccinated, partly because it's going to lead to a, a microchip and then you have this whole religious thing about the mark of the beast that a lot of them believe in. But I think that brings in people from the left side of things or more from the hippie side of things, where maybe they don't know about the whole mark of the beast thing at the start when they get on board with these people. And so that's, I think, where some of that... Uh, leftist aesthetic gets pulled in is from those people. So the um, it's a bit like a con um, a con artist always offers you everything that you want but you don't read the fine print. Exactly. Yeah, a lot, a lot of these sort of conspiracies operate a bit like a multi-level marketing scheme where they are, you know, it's all about acquiring more and more secret knowledge so you can move further up the rank. So what, that's that's like um, uber individualism, you know, where you're a special person, when you're not feeling that anybody thinks you're special, but you really are. Exactly. And then the, the more and more people you can try and sucker in, you know, the more special you become. Uh, it's interesting. Do you, do you have any idea where the um, nexus of uh, this Freedom Day uh, groups of people, are they a disparate group of people or is it... Uh, just because, I mean, in order to create a demonstration, you actually have to have some sort of organising principle. Uh, it's, the nexus seems to be a lot of these different Facebook groups. Uh, so there's been a sort of a, a big conglomeration of different conspiracy theorist groups on Facebook coming together over the course of the pandemic. So we've seen people who are worried about 5G. And I mean, there are some concerns to be had about 5G, not really from a health perspective, but from the uh, capacity it gives the state to conduct surveillance. But that's not something that they seem to be that worried about. But then you have the, the anti-vaxxers. Then you have the, um, you know, the QAnon people. And 
the sovereign citizens, and they've all just sort of come together in some weird conglomeration, and that's what I think we're going to be seeing on Saturday, is those groups all coming together. It's interesting, too, that it's just been reported that um, on Facebook, the level of misinformation regarding COVID, uh, as opposed to the information that's actually medical and science in, in, um, in its nature... Uh, like genuine information is dwarfed by, you know, billions of hits effectively. Hmm. I think part of it is possibly just due to the shareability of the correct information. Like if you look at some of the conspiracy videos where they're saying COVID's not real and the doctors aren't lying to you, there's dramatic music and fast cuts and it's quite engaging. And someone who then has to come over the top of that afterwards and say, all right, that's all wrong, uh, that content is usually very dry. And you also have this situation where in these conspiracy videos, you can make a lot of claims very quickly. You don't have to provide any proof for them. But when you're trying to debunk something like that, you need to provide you know, a huge amount of proof. And each point needs to be picked apart because all they need to say is, all right, well, what, this thing is correct. This one thing in this, these 30 claims was correct. And you didn't say that, you didn't prove that was wrong. So... How do we know the rest of it's not correct? So it's a much harder task to provide the correct information than it is to provide just complete bunk. Yeah, I've read at least, uh, seen about uh, 10 reports of late uh, built on the notion that I've been surprised to note that my university-educated, middle-class in inverted commas, suburban person who's my friend holds these views, a woman. Uh, hold these views that uh, it's all lies. So they're characterising the uh, people who feel that is to uh, infringe people's freedoms. So the narrative is that actually, you know, intelligent people uh, hold these views. It's, it's all about the type of intelligence. You can be, you know, a university educated person. And it's still very easy to be taken in by slick propaganda uh, and the sort of intelligence that you might need to you know, be you know, a so-called middle-class educated person uh, might not necessarily mean that you have the sort of media literacy to discern between uh, conspiracy theories online and genuine content because that's never been, for a lot of, especially for a lot of older people, that's never been something that they've had to worry about. There's never been an environment where there's just a huge ocean of misinformation, some of it intentional, being pushed on them. Part of the problem with getting people to stop thinking these conspiracy theories are real is that people invest in them. They invest their time and their, and their energy into believing these things. And so you have that sunk cost fallacy where you don't want to sort of think that you've wasted your time or, or you've you know, wasted your social capital pushing this stuff on your friends. And so you just keep going down another hole. But really, there's no shame in having been taken in by this stuff because it's slick propaganda. It's designed to manipulate. It's like, there's, <laughs> it's designed to trick you. So if you've been tricked by it, that's okay. The, the sort of the base thing that it's preying on is looking for an easy answer. And that's, I mean, that's the same phenomenon that <laughs> has led to, you know, we have a liberal government in this country, it's the, basically the same thing. It just strikes me that, you know, even on the most basic level, when you're a kid and you 
catch a cold or you know you already know that if you hang around if you sneeze in someone's face the likelihood of them getting it's not yeah. it's not rocket science to know how um uh illnesses pass on right <laughs> so why well, would this I mean, be yeah. any different i mean that's that's germ theory which has been sort of bedded down for over 100 years and that's part of the thing some of these people are germ theory deniers <laughs> Uh, they're going back to science that's been discredited for over a century to try and argue these things. It's all a little bit confused. It's very confused. And so I, I un, unlike the Freedom Day people, uh, I, I would not be going off and um, yelling in the streets about uh, wearing a mask or being sensible about being in a crowd, that type of thing just because I feel like it. Um, however, issues around um, socially distanced uh, um, demonstrations in defence of locked up uh, refugees uh, are a completely different issue. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you look at, say, the, if you look at, like, the, the BLM protests and you look at some of the uh, refugee protests that were held earlier in the year, those were situations where the organisers were going to extreme lengths to make sure that they were not going to lead to any transmission of the virus. Like BLM, there were hand sanitizer stations everywhere. Everyone was wearing a mask except for, you know, News Corp media. Uh, there was, they went to these real efforts to make sure that they didn't spread the virus. And we saw the result of that, which is that the virus wasn't spread as a result of those protests. I guess the danger is with Freedom Day, you have these people who don't believe in the virus, don't believe in the last 100 years of science around germs, is that they're, even though the science is sort of that outside activities are sort of basically a bit safer than inside activities, these people are, you know, shaking hands and going in for hugs and everything that you're not supposed to do in these large groups. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing about it is is that um, I guess it's like that, what is it, the Darwin Awards? Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, perhaps, you know, you're culling? Well, that's sort of the, the darkly the darkly comic thing about it, I suppose. But on the other hand, the thing that worries me is that we had these conservative governments uh, in the UK, for example, and there was a question about whether... Australia might go down the same path, where their first reaction was to sort of let it go and we'll get herd immunity and we'll see what happens. And a lot of the people in the UK that were sort of pushing that and are still pushing that have been involved in, you know, eugenics conferences where they sort of do believe in telling and you just have to wonder, did their response to the virus come sort of out of that? Yeah, I know. It's it's very interesting. And it was also very interesting here where um, early on there were some fairly large outbreaks that were caused by people who were very rich and uh, just didn't, for some reason or other, they think that being rich gives them Teflon and they spread it through all these different uh, events that they went to after they came back from um, skiing holiday in um, in America. Yeah, I, th I think because I saw someone saying this online, you know, the initial people who were affected by this were the rich because they're the people that are catching a lot of flights and 
were you know exposed to it overseas, and that there seems to be this sort of idea amongst that cohort that all right, we had to lock down because this affects us. Now that we're safe, uh, let's let the hoi polloi just uh, suffer through it. Yeah, let's open everything back up. The other thing that's interesting about this is that um, all the frontline workers and all the stuff to do with insecure uh, employment uh, and casualisation, feminised work, which is uh, caring industries, generally speaking, uh, these have really come to the fore. But still, the policies coming out of the LNP government federally does not reflect that in a so-called jobs recovery, although, mind you, they're a bit light on the ground when it comes to job recovery. They all just seem to think that business as usual with fossil fuels is going to do the job. Yeah, I mean, if you look at where the major outbreaks in Victoria have been, it's all, it does come back to the casualisation of work. If you look at the security yard situation, you have a situation where the government has gone out and tended to the big security companies and rather than under the understanding that, you know, they're going to be putting security guards who are furloughed back into work and the security companies have said, well, we can make $15 an hour, spend $15 an hour, get, you know, a hundred or something dollars an hour from the government or put on these tassels with zero training and we've seen what happens. And but like, like you say, there's no repercussion to that really. Well, it's a, it's a it's a flaw in the system that we actually live in. So what I'm getting back to is that the, when these people go out in the street and do Freedom Day, they don't seem to be aware of, that um, actually the structures which we live in uh, are um, are not fit for purpose. And it's not about wearing masks and it's not about being given limits about, you know, which groups of people you can mix with. I, I remember I saw one of these organisers doing a Facebook video recently where he basically laid out everything that was wrong with late capitalism. But he had no idea that's what he was talking about. For him, it was all just some sort of shadowy Illuminati <laughs> pulling the strings. It's not a shadowy Illuminati, it's just the system that we're living in of capitalism. And actually it would be good if we could have some changes. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, I was a bit fascinated by the bubonic plague and the history of the bubonic plague, which is not entirely comparative. But the bubonic plague ended feudalism (laughs) because there just wasn't enough people to be able to maintain that system. Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully, uh, maybe that's not the best way to end capitalism. I think we could probably <laughs> do it. I think so. Maybe we could do a, a bit of tweaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I'm not going to Freedom Day. No, I don't think I'll be there either, but I'll, I'll watch it on Facebook. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, Cam. No worries. Pleasure to talk to you. Bye. Back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, demonstrating during a health emergency has indeed allowed the balance of power to restrict movement to turn toward the increased police powers. For a more detailed and erudite discussion, we turn to part of a panel discussion that was put together by Mel's 
uh, which is uh, the Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Uh, they've um, they're doing a range of panel public panels and training sessions around the theme protest, repression, and the law. They're running uh, a series of panels, as I said, as part of Victoria Law Week 2020. The uh, discussion uh, features Professor Maria O'Sullivan from the Monash University, Michael Stanton, a barrister, and Chris Breen, refugee activist and teacher. Perhaps if you can give a a small overview about the rights that primarily Victorians have in relation to protest and, and civil action. So, of course, we've got the Victorian Charter of Human Rights. So we've got the um, freedom of assembly and association and expression in the Victorian Charter. But, of course, that's not a formal Bill of Rights like we have in the United States. So we have the Charter at the Victorian level. And then, obviously, at the federal level, we have an implied freedom of political communication. And that comes from sections 7 and 24 of the Commonwealth Constitution. And even though that's a federal matter, it does also apply to state and territory laws. That's interesting because it talks about or it's referable to representative democracy in Australia. And that's what I really flagged in my commentary on protest because along with elections, I think protest is a way of communicating to the government, you know, what, what policies we want to be instituted. And I think it's particularly important for marginalised communities. Um, So that's why I'm quite passionate about it in terms of the fact that, you know, in the environmental matters, coal lobbyists, for marginalised communities, it's very important to have that ability to protest. Michael, you've studied the operation of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act in Victoria. What sort of guarantees do do members of the community have in Victoria in relation to asserting those rights? Uh, okay, so the Charter protects the human rights of all uh, Victorians, and it's probably uh, most uh, relevant in two specific ways. Firstly, there's what's known as the interpretive provision, section 32 of the Charter that requires legislation, and that includes uh, subordinate instruments, which may be relevant to the stay-at-home directions, for example, uh, that they have to be interpreted so far as it's possible uh, to do so consistently with their purpose in a manner consistent with human rights. And then there's section 38 of the Charter, which is the obligation on public authorities as defined, which includes uh, Victoria Police. They're expressly defined by the Charter as a public authority. And there's two uh, elements to the obligation of public authorities. They have to act uh, compatibly uh, with human rights um, and they have to give due consideration to human rights when making a decision. So uh, The early jurisprudence on the Charter or the early consideration of the Charter really centred on the interpretive provision and more recently over the last few years um, it's moved towards further consideration of the obligation on public authorities. It looks like we've got uh, Chris Breen. I'll I'll throw you right in the deep end. You're an activist and one of the organisers of an early protest event that took place during the lockdown in April, the the car cavalcade at the Mantra Hotel. Are you able to tell us a bit about how that event came about? And if you're comfortable, share any of the the legal consequences? um... Yeah, sure. There's there's probably some limits on what I can say. But the, um, so there's around uh, 50 refugees, there's probably about 60 at the time, who are locked up in the Mantra Hotel in Preston. 
they're people who came under the Medivac uh, legislation. Uh, they were uh, detained offshore for six years and now have been detained in Australia for a year and often haven't got the treatment they, they came for. Um, the threat of COVID-19 has made their situation more urgent. I mean, they're, they're being destroyed by detention, their health physically and mentally anyway. Uh, but they've got a real fear of COVID-19. One of the guards has already tested positive to COVID-19. They can't socially distance in the hotel. So we organised a protest to call attention to that. Um, it was a safe uh, car convoy attempting to comply with the spirit of the legislation. So to be organised a car convoy, there are around um, 30 people who turned up in cars, no more than two people per household, didn't get out of their cars. Uh, that protest was stopped entirely and everyone who turned up was got a fine of $1,652, so $50,000 in fines in total. I didn't get to go. The police came around to my house uh, before it began and uh, arrested me and charged me with incitement. So I am facing a charge of incitement uh, to, you know, breach the, the health laws. Um, I've got a contest mention coming up on September 29th. There's going to be a rally um, on, online or uh, outside the court, depending on what the regulations are at the uh, time. We think that there is huge implications to the incitement charge, not just for myself, but for you know many social movements and unions, for the climate movement, for you know Black Lives Matter movement. For, I mean, unions at the moment, there's a narrow window. You can legally take industrial action. You call something outside of that and will union organisers be charged with incitements? Uh, so that's a, yeah, a, a basic summary of where things are at. The kind of civil action uh, that Chris has just described, is that something that would ordinarily be protected um, in Victoria? And is that changed as a result of, of the COVID-19 um, provisions? If I could just speak to that first, yeah, the, the yes. problem was that, and as I write about this in the conversation, the, well, the restrictions at that time said that only essential things were covered. Of course, things change as the COVID restrictions are enhanced. But at that time, this is my issue, that protest has to be seen as an essential activity. Um, and I'm also concerned about the use of incitement because incitement is usually for a criminal matter. Now, we can be, you know, technical about whether breaching the COVID restrictions is a criminal matter. Um, I think it's, it's not. Uh, so I think the use of incitement, which is normally used for a criminal charge, is highly problematic with COVID restrictions, particularly because they're not phrased like a criminal piece of legislation. They're quite vague. Obviously, if you've got something about, um, you know, murder, manslaughter, your typical criminal things, they will have a high threshold. They'd be very particular. So that's what I'd say about that. I understand the charge of incitement is often used in relation to terrorist events or it's mentioned in relation to organised criminal activity, bikey gangs and the like. Michael, how do you see charges like incitement um, playing out in the judiciary and the legal system? It's very rare. And no, I haven't directly dealt with a case of incitement. Uh, it is interesting that in Victoria, incitement is the offence is provided for by statute and uh, there's uh, various elements of the offence. But uh, it's also it, one of those um, elements appears to be in the Victorian context that uh, the inciting is acted on in accordance with the insider's intention. And there's an interesting um, issue about 
there's some there's some cases which would appear to suggest that you can incite someone even if then they don't go on and perform the act. Uh, there's other commentators, and I think uh, the Silk uh, Ian Freckleton is one of those uh, who writes that in in the Victorian context, it has there has to be an action that's been uh, conducted in a, in accordance with the incitement, and there's other issues that it raises in terms of the jurisprudence, which is if the person who is uh, purportedly incited was ready, willing and able to engage in the conduct in any event, has there really been an incitement at all? So those are the kinds of really thorny uh, sort of issues that where there are, is very limited jurisprudence and invariably there'll have to be a testing of that um, before the courts. And of course, the perhaps the, the main issue or the threshold issue with the uh, mantra uh, protest case is that if the protest itself isn't unlawful, well then there's no incitement. Um, so there can't obviously be an incitement to do something that isn't unlawful. So if it, so, that will be um, perhaps the primary issue. Chris, have you found personally has the existence of that charge has it changed the way you feel towards any future actions or? organization yes it's well it's, it's not just the charge it's the fines as well it's had a chilling effect on protest i mean i should say as well just in the history of incitement the last time incitement was used against protesters in australia was 1992 against the Oz study five which were five um, people who led a student uh protest up the steps of parliament house they were found not guilty uh which you know hopefully is a good precedent um I agree with Maria that protest is essential. It's how we win things. I mean, we might have seen yesterday Huyen and baby Isabella released from detention and that took two years of protest to make that um, happen. And uh, just the fact, I mean, we've, we've got a defence campaign where, you know, raising money, we don't tend to pay the fines, uh, but it does mean for other protests, we've been very careful to fit within the legislation because we, we simply cannot afford another round of $50,000 fines. It's, you know, um, it's had a chilling effect on other protests as well. And, I, you know, I think that's the intent of it. It's, it was intended to intimidate. It was intended to send a signal. We're not the only ones who face fines. The Black Lives Matter, the United Workers Union, the CFMEU have faced fines for various um, uh, various forms of protest. And I think protests can be organised safely. There's ways to do it. But at the moment, COVID is being used as an excuse to stop all protests. And, you know, when we get the mass Singer go ahead and get COVID cases, but we can't have protests when the, um, you know, the marketplace is open, but not the public square. When you get 10,000 allowed at the NRL in New South Wales and Queensland, and they're still shutting down protests, it's, it's, it's a problem. I suppose a general question that a lot of um, people I've spoken to have had um, about that chilling effect that you've described, Chris, is, is what sort of limits to the freedom of political communication and protest are reasonable in the context of a health crisis. The situation has definitely changed, but how much has it changed and how do we navigate that in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, sure. So um, back during the Manta protest, the one that Chris was involved in, I would have thought it was totally acceptable given the health evidence at the time that there be a car convoy. So obviously if social distancing is required, it's a little bit more difficult in a physical space to uh, on a road to, um, to observe that. So there are two ways. You can have a car convoy where there's only two people in the car or you can have a sit-down protest, which they've done in countries like Israel and Germany. Now, that means that there is a limit, though, to the amount of people that protest. But you could ostensibly have entry and exit points at Federation Square and literally have a sit-down protest. And, um, by the way, this is the 
I guess the debate I've had with some of my colleagues about private versus public. And it's interesting that Chris talked about public space. In America, there is a special constitutional significance given to public spaces, and they treat that very um, specially. So um, I've said to my colleagues, look, why, again, why are football matches going ahead? Why in the day was Chadston open? And they said, well, that's because it can be easily regulated. You have security guards, um, you know, having uh, policing how many people come in, and there's entry points and exit points. So perhaps that is something that we need to think about having more regulated protests. The only thing that means is that you take the spontaneity out of protests, and obviously protests can sometimes be quite responsive, like we saw on the Black Lives Matter. There seems to have been a different um, response by Victoria Police to different protests that have been held. The Black Lives Matter protest was a very large protest. I understand there were no charges coming out of that. From what I suppose was seen, uh, as you've described, Maria, there was a lot of uh, thought put into how that protest could go ahead safely in terms of social distancing and protective personal equipment. How do you explain, uh, I suppose, the difference in the police response to or, or even the media response to, to different protests. We've seen quite a lot of anti-lockdown protests in, in recent weeks, and I understand there are some upcoming as well. Um, there, there has been a uh, different response. There have been right-wing anti-lockdown protests that are effectively allowed to take place. There's one in Gippsland. There's you know, other ones in Parliament. I mean, one of them did, did face a crackdown, but that's the um, exception. By and large, they haven't faced um, that kind of crackdown. The Black Lives Matter one, I think, was the scale of it. If the organisers were charged with incitement, there would have been much more of a campaign. Nonetheless, what they, they did do, and across the country, there was a real ideological campaign to try and link Black Lives Matter with COVID spread. And actually, despite there being 50,000 people, there is no evidence there's been any transmission from that protest it's not outdoors where people are distanced that is the biggest risk. It's indoors for prolonged periods in, you know, abattoirs and aged care, which are, you know, still open. Um, so I think that's part of the, um, the, the different response that you've had there. In terms of limits on, on protest, I mean, I think the, really it's down to organisers of protests. They can be done safely. If they're not, I think that is blowback on the organisers and the protests won't go ahead. But there are different ways I've seen them done across the globe, whether it's in full PPE, whether it's being marking spots about where people can stand. I mean, Germany did an interesting um, experiment having 1,500 people at a concert all, you know, standing in different places. There are ways that it can be done. And without protests, we, it's not even about refugees or Black Lives Matter. It's to deal with some of the things about the pandemic itself. The ACT is called for pandemic leave. We know that the hotel quarantine, the aged care, it's been the casualisation. How do we do anything about that? We need protests. We need industrial action. Um, yeah. A specific question about the, um, the hard lockdown at the uh, North Melbourne and Flemington flats. Uh, Mouse has fielded questions about this in relation to how quickly that lockdown took effect. Residents in those towers were effectively told their freedom of movement was restricted and any uh, outdoor activity took place in a, in a fenced area. How was the Victorian government able to override or get around that freedom of movement that's in the Charter? Okay, so the Public Health and Wellbeing Act allows the declaration of a state of emergency. And then as part of that uh, declaration, it empowers the Chief Health Officer or delegates to make uh, 
issue directions like the stay at home directions. It also uh, gives the power to make uh, detention uh, directions or detention orders. And as I understand it, those powers are exercised pursuant to the detention powers. We at Liberty Victoria, we're uh, very concerned about what happened with the hard lockdown. Uh, we've made a public submission to the COVID-19 inquiry uh, where we've noted in our view uh, that approach wouldn't have been taken to a more uh, perhaps socioeconomic privileged uh, group of persons. Uh, it uh, There was no consultation. I mean, these people, police literally swooped in. People couldn't leave their flats um, in circumstance to exercise, uh, to get uh, essential provisions. I mean, it was just... Um, to work. I mean, it was the Ombudsman, the Victorian Ombudsman is looking into it at the moment and has called for submissions. And as I understand it, there are a lot of submissions being prepared and uh, particularly she'll be looking at it through the prism of a human rights response. Now, uh, those responsible uh, for that response are public authorities. I don't think there's any doubt that the Chief Health Officer and, as we just talked about before, Victoria Police are public authorities and they have uh, obligations according to the Charter to act compatibly with the Charter and uh, it's very possible uh, I would have thought that the Ombudsman will be making findings that that particular response was disproportionate uh, to the extent it's relevant. Um, two of the towers of course uh, it was found that there was no cases of COVID-19 in any event even if that would let, lend itself towards a proportionality argument. So, uh, look, we, we understand at Liberty Victoria that uh, those uh, administering the, these extraordinary powers have a difficult job, but to not have any consultation and to, to enforce such draconian measures uh, so uh, swiftly uh, does seem um, to raise numerous human rights concerns that are human rights that are still protected in Victoria. We've seen a sort of strengthening of, of the sovereign citizen movement during the lockdown, particularly in Victoria. Ordinary members of the community who feel oppressed by the chief health officer's directions. Do you personally distinguish between uh, those types of protesters, um, for example, and the organisers of, of the Black Lives Matter rally? And how do you approach that if you do make that distinction? Chris, do you um, want to jump in? Yeah, or? Um, yeah I, I do draw a distinction. I, I think they're you know, completely uh, different things. You know, it's quite clear that the Black Lives Matter organisers did everything they could to try and stop the spread of COVID-19. They got people to wear masks. They worked with Aboriginal health organisations. They had hand sanitizer. They tried to do social distancing. Some of the right-wing ones have tried to do, you know, nothing like that. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, the right-wing protests often want less democracy, an end to democracy, you know, not more of it. Uh, they, I think they're completely different things. And by and large, it's been an exception where they've, they've faced a uh, crackdown. Um, it's, it's almost sometimes like, if, you know, the, some of the crackdowns are a little bit easier to sell if occasionally a right-wing protest gets, gets that sort of treatment. But on the whole, it's been unions and social movements which have faced the, um, the uh, full brunt of the law. Yeah, it's a great question. The, the lawyer in me wants to be, you know, rule of law, like equal to everyone. Um, putting my personal views aside, I think technically protests should be open to everyone. Again, in that New South Wales jurisprudence about the Black Lives Matter was interesting that many of the judges made, made a point about the legitimacy of the message that Black Lives Matter was trying to communicate, which I think obviously was called for during the political climate of that time and they needed to, to say that publicly. Um, 
I think that if we look at the anti-mask or anti-whatever-it-is movement, the sovereign citizen, they're a civil disobedience movement. So can we look at those and say, well, they're trying to disobey a lawful order? Um, I would say comparing that to Black Lives Matter or even the refugee protests, they're trying to make sure that marginalised communities are given a voice. So can we make a value judgment? I would. Whether the law would differentiate in that way is another matter, though. Michael, I understand Liberty Victoria has quite a broad position regarding the expression of rights in Victoria. Has there been discussion uh, or is there a position adopted by Liberty Victoria about those, for example, the Chief Health Officer's directives, whether they're over the top or or anything like that? Yes. uh, And, yeah, just to link that in with the previous um, question, I think it is in some cases relevant, the purpose of the protest, because it may potentially enliven uh, exceptions within the stay-at-home directions, uh, particularly if one takes a human rights lens to interpreting those provisions. So in theory, uh, I agree, taking a rule of law perspective, the message shouldn't matter um, and it really should be about whether or not the protest can occur in a socially distant responsible way like the car cavalcade protest and if you had sovereign citizens protesting in a similar way it should be equally uh, protected but interestingly when one looks at the exceptions in the stay-at-home directions there's one exception for care and compassion um, reasons and um, that's further defined as including people uh, who, who are potentially suffering um, mental health issues um, and who have particular need. Uh, so in some respects, the refugee protest could be argued, or the purpose of the protest could be argued to be relevant if it actually leads to that protest fitting within one of the exceptions to the stay-at-home directions. And that's where in our view at Liberty Victoria, um, potentially the Charter of Human Rights does have work to do if the stay-at-home directions are subordinate instruments, which means they have a legislative character, and I think it's strongly arguable they do, uh, then they should be interpreted consistently with human rights. And uh, to give an example, in the Max Brenner case, uh, that was an example of where the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly informed an interpretation of the offence of willful trespass, where the magistrate in that case had conflicting interpretations of a provision. And because of those human rights, chose to interpret willful trespass as having to have an intent to engage in unlawful conduct. Now, arguably, you could apply those rights to an interpretation of care and compassionate grounds to have an expansive human rights a compatible interpretation that would extend to a responsible socially distant form of protest that was for the purposes of alerting uh, attention to particularly a particularly vulnerable cohort i've got one last question the state of emergency directly affect the right to protest uh, 
Um, so the, 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 there's no there's no such thing as a right to protest. So we've got the freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. And then I guess really the most important thing in Australia at the moment, particularly in Melbourne, is freedom of movement. Because if you can't move, you can't physically protest. All you can do is engage in online protest. So um, because the stay-at-home directions do as they say, that is you have to stay at home unless you're moving for an essential reason, I think that's one of the main limitations. Now, we can argue that freedom of movement should be expanded as the numbers come down, but I guess it's, again, based all based on the health evidence. So you might have stage one to stage four lockdowns. In the, in the very minor lockdown, there'll be um, room for protest if it abides by social distancing, so it'll have to be regulated. But my answer would be, yes, the, these rights of expression, assembly and movement are what we call non, um, sorry, they're, they're, they're derogable. So they can be limited. In contrast, freedom from torture is something that can't be derogated from. It's absolute. But these other sorts of rights relating to process, I think that's the weakness. They can be limited if there is a sufficient reason and that response is proportionate. Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. COVID-19 crisis has caused an increase in domestic violence, as we're hearing reported very frequently inside the media. This week on Over the Wall, we speak to Emily Wolfinger. First of all, Emily will provide us a context for soul mothers and how they are in a vulnerable situation already before COVID in regards to the welfare system, and then to talk about their current situation of vulnerability as households break down during COVID. My name's Emily Wolfinger and I'm a special academic looking at online user perceptions of soul mother poverty and welfare in Australia to study representation of soul mothers in the media to soul parent welfare. A major finding of my research was that negative stereotypes of soul parents have shifted the moral responsibility of soul mothers focused on the economic responsibility of soul mothers. With the term sometimes in the media a burden? Yes, I found that that was one of the most common depictions in the media I studied put forward by politicians that sole parents were or sole mothers were an economic burden. So that was talked about in terms of the cost of sole parent welfare to taxpayers, sole mothers, according to my study. But the media, usually by the comments of politicians, also depicted sole mothers as economically irresponsible and to a lesser extent as dishonest welfare fraud and so on. Welfare reforms over decades have become, as you wrote, increasingly paternalistic measures that seek to increase obligations of welfare recipients while reducing the responsibilities of governments. Could you explain what you mean by this, please? Uh, Sure. Welfare states, first of all, let me explain that welfare states expanded rapidly across the Western world, including Australia following the Great Depression and in the years after the Second World War. And this resulted in unconditional welfare entitlements, including in Australia the introduction of unemployment and sickness benefits 
child endowment, the widow's pension. Later on, a supporting mother's benefit was introduced under the Whitlam government. So during this period, welfare was seen conceptualised differently. It was seen as a means of compensating people for the inequities of the market and as an entitlement of social citizenship. So in the decades since the 1970s, neoliberal ideas, they've become widely known, about the role of the state in the market began to influence political decision-making in countries like Australia. This has seen the repurposing of government as facilitator of the free market economy. This has required, among other measures, the restriction of income support as an intervention in the market through conditions of entitlement, surveillance and punitive measures for non-compliant recipients. And this measure was built upon the Howard government's 2005 welfare-to-work policy. And how have these measures impacted upon single mothers? According to a report released by the Australian Council of Social Services, poverty in sole parent households has actually increased in recent years in sole parent households. And that this was actually linked in the report to welfare-to-work legislation. As a result, we've also seen an increase in child poverty in sole parent families. We've seen a widening in income inequality as these measures have been implemented, policies such as tax cuts for the wealthy, weakening in industrial relations laws and trade liberalisation. So they've all culminated to income inequality since at least the mid-1980s, but certainly since Howard's era. and also as being more likely to experience domestic violence. Women are more likely mm-hmm. to experience sexual harassment in the workplace and yep, having a casualised mm-hmm. market, again, places women at great income vulnerability, do you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We know that women generally, 70%, are engaged in either part-time or casual employment. For sole mothers, this is higher There's a huge scope of people becoming unemployed in in many different situations at the moment. Exactly. You know, it is precarious. In a context of bullying, it is intensified for women because of their parenting responsibilities and often they need to be present for their children. They don't have a partner to help pick up the slack. So clearly I think this is an issue that, that Australians are beginning to listen to more and more. You know the old stereotype of doll bludger and doesn't wash as well anymore with Australians as it has in the past. Neoliberalism is a primary focus of, of modern economic policies with the ideal that citizens must become active participants in, in the marketplace. Primary responsibility is to the economy and how has this neoliberalism ideal failed to recognise the obstacles to economic participation faced by single mothers? Yep, sure. Well, I would argue that neoliberal ideology is essentially based on masculine principles, self-reliance and individual responsibility. I think these values are at odds with the reality of caring work, which is a predominantly female experience. Because the emphasis under neoliberalism is on individual responsibility, you know, emphasis on economic participation, self-reliance and personal responsibility. Structural barriers to women's employment are not always acknowledged. This has an impact on women's earnings, earning capacity. 
and so that when relationships break down, often women find themselves in a precarious situation in terms of their finances. Women find themselves parenting alone after relationship breakdown, that they're on a much lower income in situations where perhaps their partner doesn't continue to help with the financial support of children after relationship breakdown. So it's particularly difficult for those women. In terms of what Sermonic does for those women, they do very little except where single parents might be facing domestic violence. In that case, there are emergency payments provided to those women in, in difficult situations. You know, for women leaving domestic violence, they have to join the queue like other sole parents to wait for the sole parent payment, you know. Uh, to come through so you know unless they go to charities basically for that immediate support or of course their families they might find themselves in a very difficult situation and of course we saw this play out last year with regards to the overwhelming majority of people seeking uh, homelessness services were women previously to that and for many years it had been men and that most of the women accessing these homelessness services were fleeing domestic violence and many had children with them. So obviously in terms of how this situation impacts on sole parents, we are seeing you know, homelessness where women aren't able to connect quickly with their income support. Women's poverty, which is largely mother's poverty, becomes evident when relationships break down. We know that women's household income drops by about 21% following separation, whereas men's income is generally unchanged and, in fact, steadily increases over the years following separation. You know, unpaid child support, only 40% of mothers who receive child support uh, report child support paid in full. This is a public service announcement. A weak solidarity, Breggy Team listener, when what tragic news. Oh, the worst recession in history, I hear you say. Well, no, I did think that was important news, not necessarily tragic, until I watched the Kerry Stacks of Wealth commercial channel news Wednesday night and discovered the recession didn't warrant a mention for the first 15 to 20 minutes, with that time devoted solely to the greatest tragedy ever. And don't forget, these are comprehensive news coverages that consider a 30-second item and in-depth analysis. 15 to 20 minutes, Melbourne had lost the grand final. Until then, I didn't quite realise just how Queenslanders cheering and celebrating at our tragic loss. 
Still on telly news, using the word news very loosely, I think we all appreciate the way the media respects our sensitivities by bleep bleeping on telly and radio and in the print media dash dash in the middle of a couple of words we would never say ourselves. So a touch bemused the other night when commercial telly news told us a senior Uh, sorry, Copper, had described anti-lockdown protesters as spelled out on the screen, B-A-T-S asterisk asterisk T crazy, but then showed the Copper saying that shit crazy, and I thought, what were the asterisks all about? We can hear it, apparently, but aren't allowed to see it. When there's a battle over squillions of dollars between face the non-fax book and goggle at our wealth on the one side and carry stacks of wealth, Lord Rupert of Wapping and the 9x fail fax lot on the other, who do we barrack for? Oh, sorry, I said that barrack. It reignites the hurt of losing the grand final. On the minor incidental news of the worst recession ever related to, we've mentioned a number of times how those who know about these things know we must relax the COVID restrictions. After all, the health of the economy is paramount. Great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, like Scott Charge the Moore of Private Road Corporation, Transurb Burn Your Money, who said Trubler was he must learn to live with coronavirus. Oh, and Scott insisted Transur Burn Your Money would not make concessions to the economic climate and would increase its fees by more than the cost of living as allowed under the fabulous contract it signed with the Jeff Footinmouth government, which has had it laughing all the way to ever since. Burn even more of. And the tourism industry declared tourism cannot wait for zero cases. Presumably, they can ensure tourists enjoy the tranquility and solitude of a pleasant lawn cemetery. Oh, and Brian McNamara of me, uh, more for me of CSL, the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, who said the lockdown tramples our civil rights. Although given CSL is head of the queue when it comes to manufacturing a vaccine when and if, don't know what he's complaining about. The Commonwealth in the title, of course, reflecting this is yet another former public asset privatised to enjoy the efficiency of the private sector. Well, therein lies the solution to state coffers being depleted by corona bailouts. As the Reserve Bank urges the states to double their contributions, quote, to help the federal government stimulate the economy out of the COVID-19 crisis, prompting the worst packed bank to sage, now is the time to reintroduce privatization into the political debate because it can be of value to finances. He didn't say whose finances, but, well, did he have to? And a fund management mob to declare states should borrow more to assist the private sector and investigate fresh revenues by privatisation. Borrow to assist the private sector and then hand your money-making assets to the private sector. Win-win, the private sector declared. The practitioners of the greatest little economic order are just so full of great ideas, aren't they? What would we do without them?
On the other hand, their enemy, the Socialist Party, that constant threat to the greatest little economic order, with a socialist candidate emerging from Melbourne Lord Mayor, Jennifer Yang, real name, who was a socialist federal candidate in the last election, who has attacked the current Lord Mayor, whose background, of course, is the property industry, for not being, wait for it, wait for it, pro-business enough. Put the B back in the CBD is her socialist slogan. Don't we have to love them? Socialism run riot. As AMP on the customers decided it may have been a bit of a mistake, thanks to the proverbial hitting the fan to promote a sexual harasser and its chairperson and another director hitting the road, and more serious allegations of sexual harassment emerged, the, and the new chairperson declared these do not represent our values. They all say that when they get sprung. Interesting, because their only value surely is their value, the share price. What else matters? As another besieged good corporate citizen, Rio Tato, the planet, produced its own independent report on blowing up the Jukan Caves by a member of its own board, who said no one was to blame, because among other things, an archaeologist archaeologist report seven years ago, forward up two years ago, describing the caves in the gorge as, quote, of the highest archaeological significance in Australia, wasn't seen by the board. So we can't blame the board. Although it does raise the odd query like, who did see it and what did they do when the great good corporate citizen was planning to blow up the most significant archaeological site in the country? And Maybe just the odd question about the efficiency of its internal communications if it takes seven years plus for a report to get to the board. But as it turned out, it was a pretty handy didn't see. Because back when the report was written, Rio Tainto was considering four alternatives, three of which protected the Jukan Caves, protected the most significant archaeological site. So what luck? They chose the one alternative which allowed them to get to the richest of the high-grade ore. But anyway, the independent report they undertook themselves said no one was to blame. Yet despite that, big supremo John Sebastian Shark was so big-hearted he headed up the coast this week to talk to the people whose 46,000 years of history he blew up and talk about ingratitude. The local KKP people suggested they mightn't want to meet him. Talk about holding a grudge. We have occasionally been slightly critical of the fair work True Blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like it con mission, but clearly it made a very, very wise decision this week. But don't take my word for it. It received universal praise from caring employers. And let's not forget that unlike evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, they represent balance in a world where they know there is no such thing as class struggle. Heaping praise on the con mission, the Small Business Profits Council's Peter Strongarm, the workers, declared happily, it's the most promising thing I've seen in a while. And our old mate Innes Will Cost, the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, described the wisdom as an important initiative that will deliver much-needed flexibility to employers and employees during the pandemic and the recovery. It is evident workplaces will never be the same again. And the decision? Workers can be ordered to work all sorts of odd hours at work and or at home without 
penalty rates applying. Peter said he was very supportive of the proposal. We, we bet he is. And Innes is looking forward to award variations being finalised as soon as possible. Flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. Apparently, workers will be better off if they're paid less. Inflexibility. Excitement this week as that giant boring machine broke through at Parkville Station as part of the Metro Tunnel Project, the machine named Joan, in honour of former State Big Supremo Joan Kerner. And we have to wonder what Joan might have thought about being honoured as a boring machine. A still-living state MP, the Caring Business Class Party's Mary Wool Over Their Eyes Ridge, has a new job as head of a mob called Global Something, whose aim is to eradicate extreme poverty around the world. And Mary said she hoped the group would come up with some new ideas and strategies. And I thought, we can be 100% certain, 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 Mary won't come up with the one idea and related strategies that would eradicate poverty, won't address the cause of extreme poverty. Our advice to the world's destitute, don't pin your hopes on Mary. It's a bit like the Smith family advertising for donations to help a child out of poverty so the student can feel happy and accepted at school with the slogan, remove poverty one child at a time. And again, I think at that rate, poverty might just be solved by about 4,028 Although it's already eradicated. Those who can remember will know that thanks to former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself, no true Blue Aussie child has been living in poverty since 1990. If only, thanks to him and his ilk, there's even more. But finally, what's poverty compared to losing the grand final? Good morning. I am not in love. But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a love I could hold my Hi, my name's Kath. 3CR has been in my life for decades. Each week I listen to my favourite programs. However, it's in a time of crisis that I really appreciate how important 3CR is. Often, this is when thousands of people are on the streets pushing for change. In this time of COVID, no one is on the streets. 3CR is more important than ever, keeping all our communities connected and informed. 3CR is a remedy for social isolation in this time of physical distancing. Good on you, 3CR. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. There has been a lot of talk since the fires that hit before COVID hit about fuel reduction burns. And since I lived in the bush and uh, was brought up in a country town, I'm well aware that farmers and politicians are in love with fuel reduction burns, believing them as a, as a common sense panacea for fierce bushfires. Uh, and as someone pointed out, despite the new report about the New South Wales fires mentioning f- fuel reduction 
including uh, legal powers to come onto properties to do enforced uh, burns, the, the elephant in the room, climate change, was little mentioned. Uh, this next piece was donated to us by Vivian Langford from 3CR's Zero Emission Community Show on Mondays at 5.30pm. It's a really fascinating discussion Vivian had with Dan Morgan from up near Bega, who's talking about cultural burning and what it all means in land management. And I'm not ashamed to say I am glad to have it explained. Dan Morgan is speaking to us from Bega in New South Wales. Welcome, Dan. Would you tell us about you and country and what you feel about it to start off with? Well, um, the Ewan Nation goes from the Shellhaven River to the Snowy River. There's um, 13 different tribes within the Ewan Nation. So it's, yeah, no, I, I grew up here in Bega, Jurunjanj, Ewan. It's a beautiful area. It's some part of this land. You mentioned the mountain just across from the town of Bega. Yeah, that's right. So there's the Mumbler Mountain or Bayamanga, which is a sacred mountain, and also Guliga Mountain, which is up near Tilba. So our two sacred mountains. So Guliga is our mother and Bayamanga our law. You said this was also a meeting place nearby here, sacred meeting place in historic times. Yeah, that's right. So Bega is a big ceremonial area where um, different tribes would come hundreds of kilometres to do ceremony here. So it's it's a it's a special place. Also, I'm thinking for Melbourne and Sydney listeners, they mightn't really be able to place it. So Bega is just in from the coast, south coast of New South Wales. What are the other main features of the region for you? Well, there's beautiful beaches here and beautiful forests. What do you actually do with this southeast local land area service? It sounds like you're out and about a lot. Yeah, so my uh, job role is uh, Aboriginal Community Support Officer. So I try and um, just promote uh, traditional land management and opportunities within community to uh, connect back to country and care for country and try and create uh, employment opportunities through caring for country. Do you mind telling me how you got started in this? Like who taught you what you know? Well, this has sort of like really been my first office job, really. Like I sort of always worked in the field. I left school pretty early, just did a landscape gardening apprenticeship and then worked with national parks for 18 years uh, in the field as a field officer and um, just started this role uh, about three and a half years ago. For city listeners, no one will have missed the mega fires that swept right down from Queensland to South Australia. And they've woken a lot of people up, I think, from what I'm reading and hearing from people, to the fact that we need to look after the land in a different way. And this idea of looking after the land is maybe even new for a lot of people. And I know that the areas down at Tathra, where you had done some cultural burning before they had a big fire through there, have had different results than areas where they've just done conventional hazard reduction. So would you describe that difference? What I saw it on the film. Listeners, you can see an ABC film. I'll tell you at the end. But what, what's the difference? Hazard reduction burns are based on reducing fuel loads per hectare. And so they're, they're generally quite a, quite a large area. 
and um, so they, they 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 measure the success of the burn on reducing surface fuel, and so what that does it, it creates quite a hot fire, and so um, it creates a hot fire, and it, therefore it, it sucks the moisture out of the soil, and it changes the chemistry of the soil. And um, during my time working for National Parks and Wildlife Service, I was involved in a lot of all types of fire, so hazard reduction burns, wildfire, remote area firefighting. And uh, what I was noticing from hazard reduction burns is that, um, you know, sort of four, five to six years later, in a lot of cases, there was more fuel load would come back in those areas through fire-dominant species that that would, would then come back after these fires and and there were sort of fire dominant species that that would fill in the mid-story section and then when when a wildfire would come through then it would create a ladder fuel that would then get into the canopy of the trees and create a wall of fire so the basing hazard reduction burns on reducing fuel loads per hectare but then you know five six seven years later there seems to be more fuel loads in those areas, and and so they, and so they base their burns on forest thresholds. So once they burn an area, they can't come back into that area and and burn for another, you know, sometimes minimum seven years, sometimes ten, sometimes longer. Hazard reduction burns are, are generally quite a hot fire, um, yeah. where cultural burning, cultural fire is is. It's the traditional fire regime of Australia that, that was implemented yeah. to manage country for thousands of years before colonisation. And so we break country, we break the landscape down into different country types. Yeah. And so that, that, the, the, that, the country type de- depends on the, the dominant tree species that's in that area. So you've got all these different country types within the landscape. You've got full gum country, you've yeah. got mixed bark country, You've got um, coastal country, sand dune country, all these different country types. And and all those areas need a different type of fire regime for each area. And so it's a bit like a garden, I suppose, like yeah. a, a like a you know, like a, a household garden. You've got your cottage gardens, you've got your rose gardens, you've got your annuals, perennials. And and it's a bit like so that's a bit like different country types. And so and, and it's a it's sort of the same, you know, if you don't maintain your garden, it gets full of weeds and yeah. it gets overgrown. And that's what's happened to the Australian bush due to the mismanagement for the last 200 years. And so when we burn, we, we just burn a cool fire. We put in just a fire. We'll put fire into one spot and then we'll wait a while and we'll just we'll let all the insects, all the birds, all the animals and the plants smell the smoke so they know that there's fire there. And then we will just walk with the fire and it, it will basically just pick its own rate of spread. So we just walk with the fire, add a little bit here and there just to sort of, just to continue it. So it's quite a, it's a cool fire, low flame height, you know, nothing really over. Sometimes you get flare-ups, you know, but really nothing over waist height. And so what's happened now because of mismanagement of country for 200 years, we're basically trying to reset these different country types. And so the reset burn is is always 
the most difficult burn because it's it's hotter than what we we want it to be, yeah. and that's just because of fuel loads and because of the mismanagement. But once we get out do our reset burn, then we get these indicators, uh, indicator plants that come back. Mm-hmm. And so these indicator plants are different in different country types. They can be different grasses. They can be different fl- plants that are flowering. And then after we reset that country, then we get these indicator plants coming back. And then when these indicator plants then come back, they tell us when that country is ready to burn. We don't decide when country is ready to burn. Country, those different country types tell us. And so when we finish burning, because we, we, we don't burn, burn to reduce fuel load, we leave like a, a, almost like a half-burnt sort of... There's patches of still little patches of leaves, half-burnt leaves, black charcoal, mm. and, it sort of, and then when it rains, it sort of flattens it all down and it acts as a mulch layer. Mm. And it puts good microorganisms back into the soil and good bacteria, and then we build up the soil to maintain soil moisture. And then so we can still have surface fuel loads, but if we have soil moisture, then that is how we suppress wildfire. So in in one hazard reduction burn, there can be four, five, six different country types that need different fire regime, but we're we're treating country all the same with hazard reduction burns. So when you were at Tarthra, you, you did that. I saw it on the film. When that big fire came through... That part that you'd done your very, you know, this very careful burning, how did the, how was that different than the area that it had, you know, just this old conventional hazard reduction? Yeah, well, um, that 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 area, the the wildfire actually went around that area, so that was the only area that was left that yeah. was still green in that landscape. The same, so we did a workshop up at Aladala last year where we did some burning on private property out of Aladala and um, the same thing happened there and where the fire came through, went around that property, the neighbours there seemed to think that it's that it, um, it may have saved their house and also there's been other instances up at Coffs Harbour as well but, but I don't, like, cultural burning is not an overnight fix, it's mm-hmm. like there's been mismanaged of country for 200 years. So, like, I don't want people thinking that it's an overnight fix. It's yeah. going to take a long time to get healthy country back. Well, as I was going to ask you, you know, I read something by that Stefan Jonasson and he said, look, this is a year-round job. This is, you know, like 12 months of the year you have to be doing this. And I wondered if you had a trained workforce you know from state and federal level you know like a lot of people for the different regions and different countries working year round do you think you'd have a chance to prevent the out of control fires we saw last year or is this just too big an ask are we expecting too much of this look i think there needs to be a mainstream program where there's mainstream funding where we have indigenous ranger groups all the way up and down the coast looking after each part of country each traditional area and then you know like the way we burn it's quite time consuming it you know we don't get a lot burnt in one day because we're we're burning for country we're not burning for hectares and so so yeah like we if there was a a program that was in place where there was uh, uh, indigenous ranger groups that that was managing their own traditional lands 
then then um, I think that you know in ten years' time we could see a massive difference. But cultural burning, it's not just about putting fire on the country. There's so much to it. You know, it's about learning to read the country again. It's it's learning about the different plants, the different medicine plants, and the different bush bush foods, and and it's learning about the animals and and the and the breeding times of the animals, and it's there's a whole so much more to just than just burning country. It's learning to to read landscape and 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 manage country again traditionally. Well, I sort of appreciate that you say that. I mean, I feel um, you know Aboriginal people have suffered the Holocaust <laughs> in the time you know we've we've had um, colonisation here. And now we're frightened, you know, now we're really frightened and we're asking you, but it seems a bit ridiculous that we expect you to return to normal the damage, as you say, that it's been done. But meanwhile, I'm a climate activist and I notice that there's a lot of money going into fossil fuels, still 40 billion a year goes to fossil fuel subsidies and yet they're cutting back forest ranges and I haven't heard that there's any you know, big move to do um, restoration of the land like you're talking about and training people. That would take a lot of time and effort to train people, I think. You have to put money into that. If Government really did have a change of heart. Do you think, how would you like to see the money spent to restore the land? Yeah, look, like I said, I think, you know, I'd love to see Indigenous ranger groups where there was um, there was training, where we based our own training package to train up, um, train up Indigenous rangers, you know. Uh, and I'm not speaking from a local land services employee here. I'm speaking yeah. as an Aboriginal community, as, as a traditional owner. You know, we, we need to have this opportunity within the Aboriginal community. You know, we're happy to share this knowledge, but this, I guess, is our intellectual property, you know, and, yeah. and it needs to be protected. And, and we could make, you know, we've got a lot of issues within community with uh, substance abuse and alcoholism and imprisonment. And, and this, you know, this could be a great opportunity to connect community back to country, mm. back to culture, and, and you know, there's not only is there benefits, um, environmental benefits, but there's massive so- social benefits yeah. as well. Respect, you know. I think that meaningful work that now everyone really, I think. Do you feel there's an appetite now for this that people really are starting to say, "Golly, we need to do things differently." Come to you. Is it happening? Oh, look, there's massive interest in, in community, in the public, you know, and um, it's it's hard to explain because, you know, we, we, we can do burns quite easily on land council land, which is private land, but to do burns on public lands, it's just so many barriers that we need to accomplish so that we can do these these burns on, say, national within national parks or state forests or, or public lands. Thank you, Dan. Look, just the very last question... This is a climate action show, so I want to know how is global warming, global heating, you know, climate disruption affecting the land around here, and what are your thoughts about restoring a, a safe climate? There's obvious signs of, of climate change, um, and I think um, by getting healthy country back, I think that is is one good step forward. And and you know, you look at old journals of of early explorers that come through. Through um, through Australia, and they talk about a uh, the landscape has been an open grassy parkland yeah. with with a lot of like you know knee high native grasses and sedges, and then then high 
big high canopy and and so you know i wonder like you know is is that the missing link within the transpiration process with with why we're in drought you know because because we don't have that that ground layer where where it could be we get transpiration into the canopy from the ground layer and then from the ground from the canopy into the cloud and then so i wonder often wonder whether that's the missing link within that that cycle i'm talking to dan morgan i think he's very tired he's been out and about all, all day doing this sort of work and I, I, I'm glad to hear that people are now keen to pay respect to this and to be interested in it. Listeners, you can see Dan Morgan doing that kind of cultural land management we've talked about today. I saw it on an ABC film um, from November the 14th, 2019. It was called Bushfire Crisis. So thanks, Dan. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast today. Hope our discussion on protest was useful and I know the explanation of cultural burning was... Tune in next week for more politics with your Wheaties. Sayonara. Adios. Amigo. I can change the world With my own two hands Make a better place With my own two hands Make a kind of place Oh, with my, oh, with my own two hands, with my own, oh, with my own two hands, with my own, with my own two hands. I can make a peace on earth with my own two hands, and I can clean up the earth, Lord, with my own two hands, and I can reach out to you. My own two hands with my own, with my own two hands. Oh, with my own, oh, with my own two hands. I'm gonna make it a brighter place. I'm gonna make it a safer place. I'm gonna help the human race. My own
gonna make it a brighter place. I'm gonna make it a safer place. I'm gonna help the human race. Oh, make it a brighter place. We can hold you and I comfort you. But you got to, 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 got to use. I use your own. Oh, use your own, Lord. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.